You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Last week we were in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10, and you'll remember we were talking about um, the idea of works and faith and how the two of them go together, how they don't conflict or contradict with each other. And so kind of looking back at those verses from last week, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so uh, the key point last week is that the Bible teaches that while good works do not come before our salvation, they necessarily come after our salvation making them the fruit of our salvation rather than the root of our salvation. So the idea being that uh, Satan would love for us to believe that good works are the basis of our salvation, that we have to achieve some type of good work status in order to earn our salvation. Uh, The gospel speaks contrary to that. And then Satan would love for us to think after we're saved that we don't have to do anything, that we can just live however we want to, right? And the gospel speaks contrary to that too. It tells us that God has actually prepared good works for us. He's destined us to perform good works, that that's part of our role and purpose now that we are saved is to work for him and to achieve uh, the type of works that would point others to him, that would glorify him as they uh, turn their attention to him, okay? We left kind of like with a summary last week that God's salvation plan is to take us from the amazing depths of our sin to the amazing heights with Christ by his amazing grace with the goal of doing amazing work in and through us. And so God desires to create a people who are passionate for good works, right? Passionate for his good works, passionate for him, passionate for being obedient to what he's called us to be, all right? That brings us to uh, verses 11 and 12 today. And so we're going to look at these two verses today. It says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is a passage that kind of gets sandwiched in here in the book of Ephesians. It's not maybe necessarily a familiar passage. We've read it before. We've maybe heard it before. But have we really processed through, reflected upon, and meditated on exactly what's happening here? Some of the idea here is similar to what he's already mentioned here in Ephesians 2, where he's calling us to remember our past so that we can better understand our present and our future in regards to salvation. Remember back at uh, verses 1. In chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When we talked through verses 1 through 3, I titled the, the sermon, The Way That We Were, The Way That We Were Before Christ. Today's title is the way that we weren't or the way that we were not because verses one through three are more of the the active or the positive things that were true about us, things that we did. They were sinful. They were uh, in alignment with Satan and the things of this world. Verses 11 and 12 12 are more of the the, uh, negative side of things, what we were not. And he goes to great lengths to talk about how we were uh, not part of God's covenant people. 
We were not aligned with Christ. We were uh, people who had no hope. We were without God in this world. And so we're going to break this down and see uh, what Paul is trying to teach the church, particularly in regards to what he's trying to say uh, to the communities of the Jew and the Gentile, because that's an important part of what plays out for the rest of this chapter is uh, Paul's going to talk about the, the unity that comes through the gospel as God unites peoples of all kind to bring glory and worship to him. For those of you that know me well, you know that I like certain types of movies. Um, I really, really enjoy movies about aliens for whatever reason. Extraterrestrial movies always pique my interest. I really like movies about time travel. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with those, though, because I like them, but I'm typically really stressed out in the middle of them. Whether it's a TV show or a movie, I'm just really concerned about people messing up time and history and uh, you know, really causing issues with that. Uh, I also like movies that deal with like what ifs. What if this had never happened, or what if this had happened? Um, Christmas time rolls around. You've got your traditional Christmas movies, but the one that I always want to break out is The Family Man with Nicolas Cage, where it's the the, the movie about what if he had not uh, moved away and taken this internship? What if he had stayed back and married this lady? Um, and then you kind of get to see a picture of what his life would have been like. I love these kind of movies, right? When I read Ephesians 2, 11, and 12, you get this picture of what life was like for us prior to Christ, and it kind of challenges us to think even through what would life be like today had we stayed in that condition, right? Um, for those of us that were saved at an earlier age, I don't know if you've ever done this or pondered this, but uh, it's helpful to me to kind of think through what would my life be like today had God not intervened when I was four or five years old, um, and it's not a pretty picture in my mind what I believe I would have become, right? I think it's by God's grace and mercy that he captivated my heart early and often to protect me from living out the things that, that I think my flesh would be prone to engage in, right? Um, this passage talks about, though, what life looks like uh, or calls us to remember what life was like when we had no hope, when we were out without God in this world. And we can be uh, grateful and thankful and, and, and he is certainly praiseworthy this morning that this is no longer our present condition, that this is our previous condition, right? What I want to do this morning, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in the introduction than we normally do, but don't, don't worry, like I've planned for that, so we're going we're gonna to fly through the, the back half of the sermon, okay? But I feel like we need to spend some time in the introduction piece really to just even understand what's happening in these two verses, because there is a call to remember something, particularly to the Gentile audience. Verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So he's specifically talking to the Gentiles, um, not that the Jews are completely excluded. They need to be involved in this, uh, this hearing as well, uh, because both groups of people are tied into the rest of this chapter, but he's specifically calling the Gentiles to remember something here. He's making this contrast of our spiritual past with our spiritual present. We said that he's doing that from the negative side of things now, things that weren't true about us. Um, but now he's specifically bringing in this Gentile Jew element. Um, and I want us to see what's going on here and better understand maybe the context so that we can better understand the truths that are contained here for us and how it even applies to us. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll remember reading other passages of Scripture, um, that there's a great rivalry that was taking place at this time between the Jew and the Gentile, right? Um, there was hatred by the Jewish people towards the Gentile people. There was even disdain from the Gentiles towards the Jews. Um, we know this from 
uh, passages like uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. When we went through the book of Jonah, we talked about how Jonah was so anti-missionary endeavors towards Nineveh, not because he was scared to be a missionary. I told you before, uh, I I was kind of raised in Sunday school thinking that Jonah was scared to be a missionary, and so he didn't want to go to Nineveh. We find out in chapter 4, it wasn't that he was scared, is that he had no desire for God to save these people. He wanted no part of watching God save people that he disliked, that he hated, who had done Israel wrong, right? We, we know from Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman that there was, there was hatred and, and enmity between the Jew and the Gentile, the Samaritan being uh, kind of a mix of Jew and Gentile together through uh, intermarriage. The Jews wanted nothing to do with these individuals. It's hard for us to maybe understand that rivalry because we don't experience that today necessarily, right? I don't know off the top of my head if I even know an individual who would claim to be Jewish, right? I've met individuals that are like, I'm like a fourth Jew or I'm like an eighth Jew if you trace my family history back this way. I don't, I don't engage with people regularly who say I am a full-blooded Jewish individual. Like I can trace my history back to the Old Testament Israelites, right? So we don't see that rivalry. It's kind of like uh, those of us that like college football, you think of rivalries, you think Auburn, Alabama, Georgia, Georgia Tech, um, Ohio State, Michigan. But then you talk like with some older folk that really enjoy college football. They talk about like Harvard, Yale, Army, Navy. And you're like, I don't even pencil those games in on my calendar. Like I don't, I don't consider those like major rivalries, right? But back in the early part of college football history, I mean, those were the games that you watched, right? And so we don't feel this tension as much today as they would have in this time when Paul's writing this Jew-Gentile tension But Paul's writing about it, and I think it's worth us reflecting upon and knowing what is exactly going on here and how it applies to us today. Israel, we know, chosen in the Old Testament to be God's special people, right? But they're chosen to be a light and a blessing, not to the exclusion of other nations, but for the inclusion of other nations, right? Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant. God tells Abraham he's calling him out to be separate. He's going to bless him. He's going to give him descendants. He's going to make a a great name of him, a great nation. But it's through Abraham, right, that he is going to be a blessing to all the other nations. So God never intended for Israel to be this separated, privileged group of people to the expense of everybody else. Instead, he looks down and sees corruption and evil and chaos and says, I'm going to work through a people to to bring light and salvation to all peoples. That's what God intended for Israel to be, to reach the nations rather than to exclude them. But we know from the Bible that Israel forgot her purpose, twisted her privileges into favoritism, and grew to hate these Gentiles that are sometimes referred to as dogs by their culture because they were outside of Yahweh's covenant. So Israel perverts the privilege and says, hey, we are better than everybody else because we're God's people, versus seeing the the, the responsibility they had as God's people to be a light and to be a, a beacon of hope to the rest of the nations. Jonah hated the idea of God saving others, right? The Jews walked around Samaria to avoid people like the woman at the well. They wanted nothing to do with them. Paul's speaking to this issue. He starts off here in verse 11 and says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentile in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he gets sidetracked a little bit by talking to the Gentile and clarifies who they are. We're talking about the people who in the flesh are uncircumcised. 
and they're called the uncircumcision by those who are circumcised, particularly those circumcised in the flesh, right? So he's, he's talking about this physical attribute of these individuals, these, these Jewish people who have a physical sign of the covenant belittling or, or having uh, a disdain for those who don't have that physical sign. If you read through the book, I actually know there was tension in the early church. Jew, Gentile, did this, was this going to be a requirement that you had to be circumcised to be part of the people of God? All right? So what's really important to know here is that circumcision, uncircumcision, what was really needed for salvation, all of the spiritual needs apply to the Jew in the same way as the Gentile. Flip over to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. God's desire for the circumcision piece, this outward sign, did not uh, negate the need for the spiritual. In fact, it pointed to the need for the spiritual, a spiritual circumcision. And the Jew and the Gentile both need this. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. If by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we know from Scripture, Paul's writings in Romans, that there was no distinction between the Jew and the Gentile as far as favor towards salvation in regards to whether you were circumcised or not circumcised. But there was privilege given to the Israelites in that they were God's people and had further exposure to the things of God than the Gentiles. Back up to chapter 3, verse 1. Paul has already, in chapter 2, kind of obliterated the prized possession of circumcision. He's revealed to the Jews that does not save you. And he's really downplayed the piece of circumcision to the point that Paul anticipates the question, then what advantage has the Jew? Right? Well, Paul, it sounds like there's no advantage to being a Jew, that there was no distinction about being part of God's covenant people versus being outside that. Look what Paul says. He says, or what is the value of circumcision? Like, was there any purpose to anything that we saw in the Old Testament? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What Paul is saying here, and what he's saying even in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 12, is that the Jew had a unique benefit of being exposed to the things of God that many others did not have access to, right? They didn't have access to this. And so there was advantage to being a Jew because they grew up and they were exposed to the things of God even prior to conversion, right? So if you were a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl, you grew up hearing about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You grew up hearing about David. You grew up hearing about the, uh, the promises and the anticipation of a Messiah coming who was going to fix everything, who was going to right all wrongs, and who was going to come and rule and reign forever. You had that hope. Whether you believed it or not, whether you submitted to it or not, and we know a lot of the Jews didn't in the Old Testament, you were still exposed to that very early and often, whereas the pagan Gentiles, 
the, the, the Rahabs and the Ruths, even those who come to faith later into Israelite history, they didn't grow up that way. Right? They grew up hearing about all these gods and all these worship practices, all these Canaanite-type uh, cultural norms. That was what they were exposed to. That's what they grew up in. So in a way, and Paul even hints at this back in Ephesians chapter 2, in a way, the Gentiles were worse off or further off from salvation than the Jew. Look what it says. Uh, we'll get to this next week. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Far off, further off in some ways because they didn't grow up hearing about the things of God, right? That's us as Gentiles. That's us as the Gentile population. Now, the need for the Jew and the Gentile, again, is the same. There's a spiritual need for correct circumcision, the spiritual circumcision. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 2. This is some of that tension that existed in the early church. And even Paul and Peter are trying to figure out how to work some of this out. Look what it says in Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. This is Paul. So Paul and Peter have to have a a heated discussion potentially because one is acting in a way that he shouldn't. Look what it says. For before certain men came from James, uh, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So you got Peter who's interacting with the Gentiles, believes that the gospel's open to the Gentiles, but then when a certain group of people show up who are heavy circumcision people, heavy Jewish people, he kind of steps back and distances himself from the Gentile people. And the rest of the Jews, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified, right? So circumcision doesn't save the Jew. It certainly can't save the Gentile because a spiritual circumcision is needed. You flip to Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you, Paul says, with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may be not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Colossians 2, 11 through 12 is another passage that would highlight the importance of a spiritual circumcision, a cutting of the heart where we become sensitive to our sin. And we've seen this in Ephesians 1. Our hearts are enlightened to the gospel, enlightened to Christ, and we come submitting ourselves to him. Israel had taken that piece of circumcision, that outward sign, perverted it, made it a sign of pride, and had really clung to it and found great value in it. And Paul's helping us to see that that doesn't have the type of value they were applying to it. Now, as I'm reading this passage and studying it for this morning, I'm thinking to myself in reading through this, how I feel a lot more like a Jew than a Gentile when it comes to this section, 
Now, what do I mean by that? Because I'm telling you, what was the advantage for the Jew? He grew up hearing about the things of God. He grew up being raised on Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob, and David, and the hope of a Messiah, right? And that's me, right? For those of us that grew up uh, within churched families, right, believing moms, believing dads, or maybe believing grandparents who exposed us to church, that's all I've ever known, right? So in a lot of ways, I read verses 11 through 12 and don't feel the weightiness of what Paul's calling out to Gentiles to remember because I don't have something to remember there. Because all I remember is being exposed to the covenants of promise, being exposed to Christ, being exposed to the hope of what it looks like to have God in the world. Now, there was a point in time where I had to submit to that, just like every Jewish boy and Jewish girl would have had to have done as well. But I grew up knowing that. I grew up being exposed to that, right? And so in some ways, now that we've drifted 2,000 years from that Jew-Gentile tension that was very prevalent in the first century church, right? Now, now it's far more easy to see that the church has kind of become the, the outlet for people hearing about these promises and covenants and, and being exposed to the things of God. And so I read this and feel very much like I'm the Jew in this passage versus the Gentile. And hopefully you would feel that as well based on your upbringing, that it's hard to remember life outside of these covenant privileges because most of us were raised in that, right? Now, people overseas, people even in our culture right here who grow up outside the church, didn't have believing moms or dads, this passage resonates, I think, a little bit more with them because they do remember what it was like to have never heard the name of Jesus or to not have heard about these covenant promises, not to have heard about the Messiah, right? So it's still very applicable for today, But for some of us, we fit more in the Jewish category than the Gentile category because all we've ever known are these covenant privileges. We didn't necessarily exist outside of this knowledge that Paul's talking about here. I would say, though, that even though we can't necessarily directly remember life before being exposed to the things of God, we can express great appreciation that at some point our Gentile ancestry was brought near in order to give us the exposure that we have today, right? So even though I can't, even though I can't remember a time where I wasn't being raised in church and being exposed to the things of God, at some point in my family's history, my mom's side and my dad's side, the Gentile ancestry that we have, at some point God intervened because we don't, we don't trace our history all the way back to the Jewish nation, right? At some point, God intervened in my family's history and said, Gentiles, come to me, right? And come be a part of what's going on over here. Be a part of my people. And that led to my exposure and led to my salvation. I can praise God for that, even though I can't necessarily directly remember a time where I wasn't being exposed to the things of God. Does that make sense, hopefully, right? So, so for some of us, we feel more Jewish than Gentile in this passage because we didn't exist outside of some of this exposure that he's talking about these first century Gentiles being in, right? Because this is this initial push where Jesus has come setting this example that the gospel's for the Gentiles. Um, this is Pentecost happening and, and Gentiles are now coming to salvation. The Jews are rejecting it. The Gentiles are coming, right? So this is, for some of these, most of these Gentiles, this is first generation Christianity for their families, right? They, they can't say, hey, I know where my grandparents are today, Right? Their, their pagan history would prohibit them from having hope 
for the salvation of their previous ancestors. But God has intervened and saved them. And then moving forward, their future family history is now uh, exposed to the things of God in ways that their previous family history was not. The grace of God is seen in bringing your family at whatever point to Christ by overcoming that Gentile factor where there was a lack of knowledge about some of the things of God that Paul talks about here. Now, here's another piece that I want to throw to you. And again, this is all introduction. It's all planned this way, okay? So don't panic. I think we're also a lot like the Jew in our disdain for those who sometimes are outside the covenant as well. Let me say that again. I think a lot of times we are like the Jew in that we are judgmental and critical and we despise those who are outside the covenant. Now, we don't use terms like circumcision and uncircumcision, right? And we even have talked before how baptism is is paralleling that and really similar to that in the New Testament, but we don't even talk about people being baptized and unbaptized. But we do use terms like churched and unchurched. And if we're not careful, I think sometimes we take our church attendance and find great pride in the fact that we do something on Sunday and we know other people don't, and we find pride in the fact that we have scheduled time with God and, and we can feel good about ourselves for that, and we can even despise others who don't. So we're very much like the Jew in that we have privileges of being exposed to the things of God, unlike a lot of Gentiles in the world who don't have access to the things of God so early in life. But on the flip side, we're also very much like the Jew in that if we're not careful, we're very critical of those who are outside the covenant. And we despise them um, and treat them negatively and talk negatively about them. And maybe even, God forbid, become like Jonah and don't want to see God save certain ones because of what they've done to us. And so we have to be very careful that we don't, we don't become like that in our spiritual pride. The things that God has given to us, the things that God exposed us to and has called us to, that we don't find pride in that, all right? Paul wants to remind believers here of where we were and where we have been brought to as we are prone to forget. Notice that he tells us to remember twice in this passage. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, then he says in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So big push today for us to remember something. Particularly, what does he outline for us here in verse 12? To remember that we were Christless. We were peopleless. We were hopeless. We were godless. These are things that were true about us before we came to Christ. Um, these are things that were true about the Jew as well, right? He's separated from Christ. He's not really a part of God's people. He doesn't really have true hope or really have God in his life until he submits, but he was at least exposed to those things. The Jewish boy and Jewish girl was at least exposed to those things growing up, right? All of us, Jew and Gentile alike, have to come to Christ and submit to these things, right? Prior to us submitting to these things, Paul describes us as these people who are without some really important things, without Christ, without hope, without God in our life. I think it's important too, and then we're going to jump into the text, uh, to note here, for us as parents to be really careful in the communication that we have with our children about whether they are included or not included in some of the things that are talked about in Scripture, right? Um, and we don't have to be, we don't have to be inappro- inappropriate or aggressive with that. But I try to be very careful with my kids about talking about who God is and who Christ is and the joys that come from being a Christian and how until they make a profession of faith, these things don't directly apply to them yet, 
They don't directly apply to them yet, right? They're not Christian simply because my wife and I are, right? And they don't get these privileges and benefits and blessings. They are currently outside the promises of God. They are currently outside the blessings of salvation until they make a submission to Christ. Now, God has graciously allowed them to be born into into a family where the gospel is preached regularly, and they see it modeled before them daily, right? Um, But until they submit to that, they're outside of this. And I think it's important that we help our kids see that so there's no confusion about being born a Christian, right? Or being a Christian because we go to church as a family, but recognizing that there's no value in the circumcision, uncircumcision piece. It's coming to Christ, the spiritual change that is necessitated for us to truly be saved. All right, let's jump in now. And the first point is longer than the second point, just to keep you updated. All right, summary sentence. This is the latest that we've ever gotten to our summary sentence, I think, in the history of my teaching here. As unbelieving Gentiles, we were extra far away from the blessings and benefits of God. What do we mean by that? We're extra far away because we don't even know about them, whereas the Jew would have at least been exposed to them. As unbelieving Gentiles, we were extra far away from the blessings and benefits of God, but now that has been changed by Christ, giving us reason to find meaningful hope and community with God and his people. The climax of where we're headed in chapter two is God is going to, or Paul's going to show us that God is uniting Jew and Gentile alike as the people of God. And so we're gonna find hope and community with God and his people because salvation is about coming to God and being a part of his people. But as unbelieving Gentiles, we were far away from this, far away from these blessings, far away from these benefits. And and again, while I've said that many of us grew up being exposed to those from day one of our life, that wasn't always the case in our Gentile ancestry. And God intervened and brought us into uh, into this exposure. And we can be grateful and thankful for that today. Extra far away from the blessings and benefits of God, now that has been changed by Christ. And now we have great hope and great community available to us from God and his people. Number one, remember your past to maintain gratitude and humility. I told you that Paul's main word here for us today is to remember, remember what your past is like. And by remembering, we can maintain an attitude of gratitude and humility. Paul calls us to remember because we're too easily uh, prone to forget, right? Our pride tempts us to erase the shame and the inadequacies of our past. None of us want to believe that we were not good enough to be saved, right? Most of us want to believe that there's something innately good in us, and that's why God chose to work and move in our life. Our pride tempts us to forget what our condition was like before Christ. Our pride also tempts us to think that we're better than others, to take on the role of the Jew that we see here in this passage and to be judgmental towards the uncircumcised. But if we'll remember our past, it'll keep us gracious and thankful to God, and it'll also keep us humble in regards to our interaction to others. So by remembering, we will live with a greater sense of gratitude to God. Remembering our past helps, us to, helps to keep us focused on why we trust him and why we obey him. If we'll remember the past and even think about what would my present be like if I was still in this condition, if I was still without hope, if I was still without God, what would my present condition look like? You reflect on that for just a little bit and you come back praising and thanking God for what he's done in your life, right? And then when you're going through trials and difficulties, you keep trusting him and you keep obeying him because to have a life without him, that's unbearable once you've been exposed to it, right? Once we've grasped life with Christ, 
You take that away from me, and this life makes zero sense, right? I can't go back to life without hope and without God. Now, most people, most Gentiles live in a state where they don't realize that they're absent from, from hope and absent from God, right? But once you've had your heart enlightened and once you've been brought to this state, to think about going back to a state of life without hope and without God, that's unbearable, right? And if we'll remember our past before Christ or even what our present would be like today without Christ, man, it leads to a state of gratitude. We want to trust him. We want to keep obeying him. We also live with a greater sense of humility towards others, when we remember our past. It helps to keep us loving and serving others versus despising them. Why? Because when I'm sitting, um, when I'm sitting uh, at, at school trying to interact with a kid who I know his family's not involved in church and he certainly doesn't exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, right? It keeps me seeing him with an eye for loving him and serving him versus despising him. Why? because it's only by God's grace that I was saved from where that kid is at, right? It protects me from sitting around with family and extended family and seeing the the fruit of their sin and their lack of trust in God. And it keeps me from being prideful and thinking I am better than you people, right? It reminds me that I am only different, not because of my good works, not because of my performance, but because God has interceded in my life and changed me and can do the exact same thing for them, right? That they are not without hope when it comes to the gospel, that they too can be reached with the same gospel that has radically changed me, right? So by remembering our past, greater gratitude towards God, greater sense of humility towards others. We love and serve others versus despising them. Remembering these things will help make our salvation precious and people around us precious as well. What does Paul say about our condition or our past prior to Christ? Number one, we were not anticipating Christ, right? Jew and Gentile alike are separated from Christ, but from the Gentile side of things, we were separated even from an anticipation of the Messiah. There was no expectation of a Messiah or a great king coming to repair and to reign, to make all things right. This was something that belonged to the Jews specifically. Romans chapter 9, We're seeing some of the uh, disabilities of being a Gentile here, some of the things that weren't as prevalently available to us. But you see in Romans chapter 9 what is made available to the Jew. Verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. This is Paul talking about the Jew. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Right? They had the oracles of God. They've got the written word of God. They've got the patriarchs. They've got the prophets. The Jews had access to all this. Now, again, what were they supposed to do with that? Share it. They were supposed to be a light with that. Right? The other nations weren't to be excluded from that information. They were to be the vehicle for sharing it. What did they do? They bottled it up. They kept it to themselves and became prideful with it. Right? We as Gentiles, now again, most of us grew up with an expectation of a Messiah. Most of us grew up expecting a king to come rule and to reign. And at some point, we submitted to that. We trusted that. But at some point in our Gentile ancestry, our our great-great-great-grandparents didn't have that, right? They didn't have this expectation of Messiah. Now, this is a product of our own choices in rebellion, right? This is something that we have willfully 
chosen as Gentiles. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Where does that condition come from? We won't take time to read it because of time, but Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 26 tells us how we ended up in this darkened, unenlightened state. What did we do? We took the knowledge we had about God and we rejected it. And we said, you know what? Rather worship the things of creation versus the God who created it all. Romans 1 gives us a great picture of our spiritual history. We rejected God and we chose this world over him. And it led to a darkened state of understanding. But as Gentiles, we are not anticipating the Christ. No expectation of a Messiah. Number two, we were not in fellowship with God's people. Now again, most of us grew up in church, and so most of us have been a part of God's people from this same covenant standpoint of being a participant, even though not spiritually, physically, we were aware and a part of God's people. Somewhere in our past, though, as Gentiles, that was not the case. We were excluded from the history of God's protection and provision for his people. We were outside the commonwealth of Israel. We didn't have access to their history. We didn't have access to to the ways that God was working and moving. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Number three, we were not partakers in God's promises. We had no claim on the covenants and promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel. Even the the promise made to Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, verses 10 through 13, after he shows zeal, right, for the glory of God, what does God then respond to and say? You are always going to have a mediator in place for you. You are always going to have someone who stands in place for you, right? Priest leading to the ultimate priest, Christ. In our Gentile state, before coming to Christ, before our family was brought into this, this people group, we didn't have this promise. We didn't have access to it. Promises made to David. We did not know the promises. Even worse, we didn't even have fellowship with the God of promises. We didn't know. We didn't have access to him. Not partakers in God's promises. Number four, we were not filled with hope. Life had no purpose in its origin, no plan in its plot, and no destiny in its climax. Life had no purpose in its origin, no plan in its plot, and no destiny in its climax. No intentional beginning, and no intentional ending. That's what life was like before coming to Christ, before being exposed to the things of God. One commentator said, one of the most precious things in all of this world is having hope for another one, right? One of the most precious things that we can possess in this world is having hope for another one, that this isn't it, that this isn't the best life can offer us, that there's a life to come with our reigning king, And he is returning one day. Now, the lost world has to ignore the reality of life and death because they have no answer for it, right? Those who are outside the covenant of God, outside exposure to the things of God, what is their belief about uh, our origin? Accident. It's accidental, right? And there's no purpose with your life. And then your life just ends and it's done with and there's no climactic finish for it, right? Right? If you really spend some time meditating upon that, that leads to great despair. And so what, is the, what, is, what does Satan do to keep people from focusing on their hopelessness? Man, just distracts them with the things of this world. 
right? Because if you pause long enough as an unbeliever to think about the fact that my life is an accident and it has no purpose and it's going absolutely nowhere, I mean, what are we even doing, right? What are we even doing? And, and so the world is distracted. They have to wrap their minds around the temporal to avoid the eternal. I, I've never been, I don't think I've ever been to a funeral, not a funeral of an unbeliever, but a funeral that was planned, orchestrated, and designed completely by an unbelieving perspective. I, I've not had that yet. I can't imagine what that would be like, though. First Thessalonians 4 says what? I'm telling you about your future so that you won't grieve as those who have no hope, right? My only exposure to funerals have been either believers being celebrated by believers or believers presenting the gospel and sharing the gospel in light of an unbeliever passing away. There's still great magnification on Christ and the gospel, right? There is a big push to not grieve as those who have no hope. And I can't imagine, and the world has to ignore the coming death because there is no hope, right? There is no hope in it. No intentional ending. We were filled with, uh, we were not filled with hope. And number five, we were not yielding to God's presence. Now, Paul is reminding us where we were at from our perspective, separated from Christ, alienated, no hope, without God. Now, we know from Ephesians 1, God's, God's intentional work in our life has always been there, right? Before the beginning of time, chosen, predestined, like God has always been working for us, but we were oblivious to it. We weren't submitted to it. And so for all practical purposes from our side of things, we were without God. Even though God was working for our salvation, we're without him. This is our state before Christ. We're not aware of his presence. We're not relying upon his presence. We're not aware of any benefits of his presence. We're very much a worshiper of gods, but not the God. Psalm 115 says that our gods could not speak. These gods that we made from Romans chapter 1, they can't speak, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't do anything for us. Right? No hope, no Christ, no anticipation of Messiah, no fellowship with God's people. This was our state before Christ. Paul says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I I, I thought about going into verse 13, but I knew for time's sake we probably wouldn't get to. But verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What I do want to emphasize to you in closing is that if we are called to remember these things as part of our past, the implication is these are things that are no longer true and the opposite, the opposite is now the case for us as believers, right? So let's think of it in the opposite terms now. Number two, rely upon your present for hope and community, Right? We remember our past to make us grateful, to have that gratitude and humility, remembering where we came from. But now we rely upon our present for hope and community because we now have access to Christ, the blessings of his first coming and all of the hope regarding his second coming. Right? We've been exposed to that. We know that, and we are trusting in that. Number two, we now have Christian community. And what a glorious thing it is to be in Christian community because Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 and 25 tells us not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, 
but gathering together. Why? So that we can hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, right? The Christian community keeps us hoping in this new hope that's been given to us as we keep turning from sin, because Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 says, we need this community, why? To exhort us, to exhort us daily so that we don't get hardened by sin. What a glorious thing to be a part of God's community, God's people, to be a part of fellowship where we're, we're moving in the same direction. We believe that our life has purpose. We believe that it's coming to a climactic end. We believe the Messiah, the King is coming back and we can hold fast to that hope with each other. Number three, we now have promises to claim. We're included in everything. All of these things apply to us. All these things we see in the Old Testament, all these things we see in the New Testament, they are applicable to us now. Second Peter chapter one, even as Gentiles, these things are true for us now. Second Peter chapter one, verse one, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, not by circumcision, not by being born a Jew, but by the righteousness of our God and Jesus Christ, we have a faith of equal standing with Peter's. Verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desires. This very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge and so on. We have been given these promises. We are now partakers of these promises. Equal standing faith with Peter. Number four, we now have hope to sustain us. We have been enabled to hope in the one true God. He's now ours. We now belong to him. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose help or whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. And before Christ, I have to read this and say, man, that's great for the Jews. That's great for the Israelites. As a believer, I can read this and say, this is me. This is me, and this is my God, and my hope and help comes from the God of Jacob. He is my Lord. Number five, we now have God at work in us. He's working good for us and nothing can ever separate us again. Romans 8, 28 and following. He's at work in us, working good for us and nothing can separate us from him again. Our identity truth to remember today. Every Christian enjoys hope and community found in the promises and people of God. Every Christian enjoys hope and community found in the promises and people of God. So Paul is telling us in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 to remember where we were at before Christ, particularly from the Gentile side of things. We weren't even on the radar in our minds about becoming a believer, right? Some point in our Gentile ancestry, we were pagan to the core, no interest in the things of God. And he stepped in and changed that. 
And he changed the course of your history, potentially by changing the course of history for your great-great-great-grandparent who became a believer, who was outside of all this stuff and was brought near, brought near to where you could be exposed to where you could become a believer. And we enjoy this. And the application for us today would be twofold. Number one, to spend some time reflecting upon and remembering the circumstances used by God to bring you to him and praise him for it. Now, I don't know how far back you can trace your ancestry. I know that in talking with my mom recently that my great-grandmother, my great grandmother, Granny Griffin, who lived in Griffin, and that's why she's named Granny Griffin, was an active member at First Baptist Griffin and was tithing until the day she went into a nursing home. And I can't, I can't discount the fact that, that somehow her faith like, helped lead me to my faith. I don't, I don't have the, the capacity yet to trace back my lineage to know when did we as a Gentile family get entered into the covenant of, of God's people. But man, I can praise him and thank him for the circumstances that I know in my life, even though I was being exposed to it, that a Sunday school teacher at Victory Baptist Church was talking about the gospel and that my mom was a believer to lead me to faith that Sunday after church, right? I can praise him for the fact that while I was once this, I am no longer this. And then number two, man, to really challenge yourself to ask yourself, are you guilty of spending more time pridefully judging the unchurched versus being a light and witness to them? Don't lose sight of the fact that there's a subtle there's a subtle reminder to the Jew who is listening to the instruction to the Gentile, hey, you guys are guilty of calling these people uncircumcised and, and pridefully claiming something that's fleshly in nature, right? Let us not be guilty of spending more time judging others for being outside the covenant versus being a light and witness to them. That was what Israel was supposed to be. Israel dropped the ball. Let us not be the same. Let's pray together. God, we love you. And we praise you and we thank you that we are part of your covenant. For those of us that are believers today, we are part of your covenant. We have a hope in Christ. We are no longer godless. We are no longer separated from the commonwealth of your people. We are no longer um, unable to participate in the promises that you've made. And you've brought us near. When we were far off, you brought us near by the blood of Christ. And we praise you and thank you for that today. If it was as easy as being circumcised, people would line up for that to be saved and then go back to living life the way they want to. But God, you've made it very clear, circumcision, uncircumcision, neither of those things save or prevent salvation. Instead, it's the work of Christ. It's the shed blood of Christ that saves us. And it's our submission and faith in those truths that allows us to escape a life without hope and without God. So God, I pray for, for those today who, who are unbelievers, who have been raised and exposed to the things of God, but have yet to submit themselves to it. God, I pray that you'd awaken their hearts today, open their eyes to see these privileges and benefits and blessings that they are not yet enjoying them, but can. Not because of their good works, but because of the good works done by your son. And God, for those of us that are believers, help us to remember our past. Help us to remember what our present would be like without you. God, I pray that would keep us trusting you, keep us obeying you. But God, help, it to have, help us to have a broken heart for the people around us. Help us to realize we're no better than them. We haven't achieved a status that is better than them. We're simply the recipients of your grace, and they too can be recipients of it as well. 
We need to be faithful to share. God, help us to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.